When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Netflix, your weekly guide on what to binge this week. Barney Kinkle, the only person you're gonna scare is yourself! Charlie! What are you oh, doing? Keep the noise down. What are you doing here? Maze, just in time. There's a whole load of police here. Send the word you're gonna hurt yourself. Or someone else. <laughs> How many children are you friends with? I'm Callum Crumlish, and this week we're going to be discussing Tales of the City, a brand new and exciting remake of the Armistead Morpin novels. We'll be joined by Stefan Kiriazis to find out what this new show is all about and why everyone should be watching it. So this is a uh, sort of return to the return to the story written by Armistead Morpin, um, and it brings back Marianne Singleton back into Barbary Lane after all these years. Uh, so this follows on from the TV show that was in the 90s, 93, you said? Mm-hmm. And then we had a couple of returns as well. So we've had, I think, three miniseries so far. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a, it's a weird sort of return to form because obviously this has had a few few outings on TV, sh- on, on TV stations and what have you, but this is the first time it's been dropped all at once on Netflix, uh, big budget, lot of, lot of new cast members, all sorts of things going on. Um, Helen, what did you think going into it? Um, yeah, so kind of going into it, I was a little bit daunted by the, the kind of history of it. Um, I'm ashamed to say I didn't really know an awful lot about it. You know, read up, read up about the characters, and I watched the first episode recently. And um, yeah, I thought it was quite sweet, and I could see myself getting into it. It's just hard to get into because I've not seen the others. I don't know if you guys felt the same, but yeah, no, I, I really kind of connected with the characters. I thought they were, you know, obviously already well-formed characters. Um, so you didn't have that kind of need to kind of develop their character traits, etc. But I found, because of that, I found it a little bit difficult to get into. I don't I- know if you guys yeah so i agree with you to to a point there um so jumping into it like you said there's a lot of these characters and they all know each other and it's all very obvious that the viewer ought to know these characters i suppose and going into the first few episodes you're a bit like whoa you know uh, what there's a lot of backstory here what's going on um and then like you said you look into the backstory of it and you go into the the magical world of armistead morpin's novels and tv shows and you see that this is you know this is chapter x in a whole line of books and tv shows and but but i feel like once you get over those over that sort of hurdle you really dive into the characters and there are some really elaborately written characters really delicately written characters and they're what the heart of the show is um stefan you you were a fan of the show before netflix uh, revival um what were your thoughts on yeah i I remember seeing the show when it first came around different generations and all that and i think it's i think it's bold of netflix to take something that was a legacy story that does actually have a history rather than just kind of creating new content the whole time they've taken something and then they've actually there's plenty of new characters so we don't know them either it's so you were all catching up and even i i mean it was years ago so i'm scrabbling around trying to think oh hang on were they married what happened 
But it, if you just stay with it, it's like it's there's a lot of things these days that drop you in the middle of something and you just have to pay attention. And if you engage with the characters, I don't think it matters. And then you pick it up as you go along and then you become involved that way as well. So for me, I agree. I was a little bit sort of on shifting sound at the start, but I was massively into it. So first and foremost, it follows, as I said, uh, Marianne Singleton returning to Barbary Lane for the birthday of Anna Madrigal, who's mm. sort of the matriarch of this mm. uh, LGBTQ plus community that she has sort of built around her or, mm. or has, you know, surrounded her. And um, yeah, it sort of kicks off from there. And there's a lot of good relationship, uh, a lot of good relationship conflicts, uh, a lot of spanners thrown in the works. Uh, Marianne Singleton's... Um, her marriage sort of breaks down in the first mm. episode or two. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much instantly. Um, it's from the first scene, basically. You can tell they're just not liking each other. Yeah. Um, but then on top of that, you get this weird sort of blackmail plot coming in against uh, Anna Madrigal, which I thought was interesting, but a little, little strange to add in. No, not at all, because this is what Armistead Morpin always mm. did. And the, okay. the original books and the original TV shows are notorious, certainly in the books. There were cults, there were there was cannibalism there were all these crazy things so it was it was originally written as a serial for newspapers yeah so it was very pulpy it was a bit like dickens centuries ago mm-hmm. it's very hyper exaggerated reality but then the beauty of that was underneath there was so much heart and there was so much relevance to modern stories so there's always been a kind of slightly wacky crazy subplot going on and the rest of it very much is um everything's changed and nothing changed the the opening question to Anna Madrigal is, you know, you've been in San Francisco for 50 years or whatever. How much has it changed? And she's like, well, it hasn't really. People are still people. The world turns. Mm-hmm. We're always all still the same at the core. And that's what the show's always been about. And that's why I think it's beautiful and relevant mm-hmm. and, and universal, despite the very particular themes. And um, I'm just going to pick up on that point there. It is a really good looking show. Like mm. cast aside, it's shot really well. Beautiful. Um Helen, did you, like you said, you're as as new to this story as I am. Did you sort of pick up on these weird, good-looking sets that were um, put in your face as soon as you started the show? Yeah, I mean, like, who doesn't want to go to that party, like, immediately? (laughs) It looks like the place to be in San Fran, right? But, um, yeah, no, I just wanted to pick up on what you said, Stefan, about, you know, the heart of the show. Mm. For me, like, it was the, it was very much the characters and their interactions mm-hmm. that I wanted to watch. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not really that bothered about these wacky plots. Mm-hmm. Like, exactly. I would happily just watch the interactions because I thought, you know, they're quite interesting and they're really, really nuanced throughout. Mm. Well, everybody's very, very messed up. And that's basically, we're all very messed up. Even Anna Madrigal, who is set up as this kind of, for me, she seems like a little bit like the Dowager Duchess of Downton Abbey. She just drops these occasional clanging sort of one-liners that are just fabulous but actually, she's much more than that because she's the integral character and she represents the spirit of the show. So everybody is just like us, basically. They're all still messing up. And they might be teenagers or they might be Marianne and, and Mouse in their 40s and 50s. Or they might be Anna, who's 90, still making mistakes, still got regrets, still wishing they'd done things differently and still with an opportunity to make things better. Um one of the characters I liked the most in this, I'm a little biased because I think she's fantastic, but Ellen Page's character, Shauna mm. Hawkins, who's Anna's sort of estranged daughter, but kind of not really. Yeah. Um, I thought her inclusion in the whole situation was really good because she bridges the gap between both Marianne and then the rest of the community because sure. she feels like she has a connection there. And I think diving into their relationship uh, throughout the first few episodes is really interesting because I was convinced, again, I didn't know, right? So I was like, oh, that's her daughter. Like, yeah. why isn't she... 
why isn't she trying to connect with her uh-huh. and then it comes out to me anyway that she isn't her mother she was like her foster mother but then left anyway and there's yeah. still you know some love lost there um so i thought that was really interesting and ellen page as always kills it i think she was so good in this <laughs> i just think she's wonderful um and i think the scenes with her and um Marianne, uh, her actress, Laura, is, Linney. Laura Linney. Thank you. Um, their, their scenes together on top of the of the roof, Barbary Lane as well. Amazing. They really bounced off each other so well, and I really, really enjoyed it. I was living for those scenes, to be honest. Yeah, it's painful because we've all been there, knowing what we should say, what we want to say, we still don't say it. Passive aggressive resentment, all those sorts of things swirling around, and underneath it, all this desperate want and yearning for someone just to give you a hug or tell you they love you or explain what the hell, why they did that in the past but you can't actually ask or say it. So it, it's it's very, very real. And I, I'm a fan of Ellen Page, but I, I respect the fact that she never tries to be likable. And I think that's this this show in the end is very good, that it's unapologetic. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does something a little bit ugly or stupid. Um, and that's what we will do. Mm. I can't help but think that was a little frustrating throughout it though as well. Like as a viewer, I just want everyone to be happy and like get on with their lives, but everyone's doing yep. something wrong. You know, if it's not Mouse with his wonderful husband, I think they're married, right? Their wonderful husband, no, they're no. not married. His wonderful boyfriend, but then he bumps into his ex and he's like, well, maybe I should give him a call. It's like, no Mouse, just yeah. stay, be happy, please. Oh, uh, Well, no spoilers for the ending, of course. but it's all TV shows now are suffering from this. They don't know how to bring it to an end. They don't sure. know how to end a series, <clears throat> Game of Thrones, and yeah. even The Good Wife, all these great shows. Um, and this show, again, it didn't give me the ending that I wanted. It didn't give me, I wanted hearts and flowers, and I wanted a couple of happy, gorgeous, huggy moments. Mm-hmm. It didn't give me that. And for the first time in a while of the show, I completely accepted it. I was completely fine with it because it felt real. Mm-hmm. And I still cared about them. There was still possibility and hope. But it didn't either just screw it up awfully and it didn't go the saccharine route. Mm-hmm. So I respect that. And I think that's the strength of the show as well. And the same, we were talking a little bit about that dinner party. Yeah. There's a classic dinner party scene. So just to, just to clarify for Helen, uh, so there's this scene in God, oh, episode painful. five where um, all these characters get together and they have this enormous dinner scene. And it's sort of a, I wouldn't say an argument. But they're mainly older gay yeah, men so in their fifties, successful, affluent, white. Exactly, these older gay men versus this younger crowd of queer folk, and it boils down to you don't know what we experienced with yeah, the AIDS crisis the right. and yeah. everything, and uh, and it's just this really as a, as a straight man, that is something I would never have thought yeah. of, and uh, yeah. I, some, I just never would have crossed my mind that that yeah. was a disparity between the community. Um, and it was really interesting to watch. And again, with the uh, Helen's point earlier, the characters of this characters in the show make the show and i cared about them enough to to want to see the end of that debate and yeah. see where everyone was coming from and why they all thought the way they think because you hit the point on the head it's not the fact that it's a gay conversation like i am a gay man i'm 48 and i lived through a lot of that but it's a generational thing so yes within that context it's about a gay subject and gay generations but it's basically a generational conversation and you have the situation when uh, Shauna goes back to meet Marianne's husband and teaches all his mates how to talk to their daughters on social media and texts. So it's very much the the gay element is being used as a metaphor or symbol, but it's basically, it's everybody. We all have that with our parents, our friends, different generations. Why do you think Netflix was the avenue to bring uh, Tales of the City to the new audience, the new generation of viewers? It really couldn't have been anywhere else. You know, like Netflix is such a revolutionary kind of platform. And, you know, it's obviously paved the way for the likes of Amazon Prime, etc. And I think, you know, as as we were saying this about the, the dinner party scene, 
it's a generational debate. You know, they kind of had to have a scene like that. Um, and it felt for me that they kind of had to have this um, continuation of the story on Netflix. It just seems like the right place to go. They're doing some great work, Netflix, for the LGBTQ plus community. And I think, you know, why not? you know, bring these characters back that everyone loves and introduce them to a new generation. Like, all it's made me want to do, in, instead of kind of carrying on with this season, it's made me want to go back and, you know, see the past season and then go back and watch it. Which are and not on Netflix. Netflix. They're not on Netflix. Yeah, well, Why? Fair. I know where Get they are. Get them on Netflix. Like <laughs> where are they? I'll tell you in a bit. <laughs> Netflix should totally buy it. And I think, you know, like, they should kind of, like, own this new season. Mm-hmm. Because I'm assuming, you know, it already sounds really popular on social media. I'm assuming they're going to do another season on Netflix. So, yeah, it just felt like, you know, dropping it all in one, you can consume it as you want. You know, if there are some difficult moments that, you know, you the, the dinner party scene will divide people for sure. And I think, you know, that's the beauty of Netflix. You can turn it off or you can continue it. And um, it's definitely the right platform to spark that kind of debate. Well, I've got one word for both of you why it's on Netflix, which is pretty much sex. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, there's there, a, there's a down lot to that. of sex in this. There's a lot of sex. My 75-year-old parents, bless them, started watching it. My father dropped out because it was a little bit too much for him. So my mum watched it this this rainy Monday. She binge Netflixed it all Monday afternoon. And my dad, my dad got home at the end of the day and watched the last three episodes and relaxed back into it. But there's a lot of... And even for me, I mean, some of the, the scenes between Michael and his wonderful beautiful boyfriend was so powerful but at the same time it's not gratuitous it's honesty and it's the fact that it's just very very purely this is what people do this is how they live and a very graphic sex scene is also matched by one of the most beautiful declarations of love in bed that I have ever seen made me cry and the one thing I'm getting from all my gay friends of different generations um, is we've cried throughout but also from the familiarity and the warmth of it and the just the relief to have a story for us again. So it's it's incredibly powerful and I'm incredibly pleased that Netflix is doing this. So Stefan, you're obviously a fan of the uh, original series or the, mm, the previous much. series. Um, how do you feel then as a fan taking on this new show? Do you think it do you think it adds to it? Do you think it makes it better? What if you were to watch all of the series in one go, how do you think this would add up to the whole sum that is Tales of the City? I think it stands up. I think each each mini series has been of its time and that's important and it's reflected what was happening in the world at the time. I think this stands on its own. And also, it's a very difficult moment in history and in social history at the moment. There are some difficult things happening in the US and around the world in terms of human rights, rights to expression, rights to live, rights for gay marriage are being encroached again in the US. So it's an important show, but it's not a political statement or a show. The whole point of the show is it's just about people. And that's what it does so well. And I would like to say... Netflix need to look at this a little bit more closely and what Armistead Morpin is doing here because this for me works better than a lot of their sort of much touted shows because it actually nails what it's like to be a real person. I actually think, you know, I I totally agree with you, Stefan, about Netflix. Their new direction, they they do kind of, they are hinting more at realism and that's like very much the genre that they're going down at the minute. And yeah, they slotted in like completely with their kind of back, their back catalogue. And, you know, I, I can see this kind of starting more of these you know ensemble dramas you know we've had a few already and whether it's like superheroes or whether it's just people living in san francisco like it works for netflix and it's obviously like a winning combination so i can't wait to see what else they're going to put out off the back of this 
So here at Netflix, we like to leave you with the best recommendations of things to watch after you've watched the latest TV shows this week. Obviously, we're talking about Tales of the City. So we have collected up a few things that you ought to watch after binging Tales of the City. Um, first of all, this first one uh, isn't on Netflix, but you need <laughs> you need to watch it because obviously it's the beginning of Tales of the City. Amazon Prime Video have all the Tales of the uh, City. That's where it's sitting. So I, I thank you, would, thank you. I would presume once their license or their holding fee has elapsed, uh, you know, lapsed, Inspired. they will Netflix will hopefully bring it over to Netflix, and then we'll have the whole package. Um, so that's a that's a top tip for you there. Thank you very much. Um, but in terms of Netflix itself, I have discovered a gem, Stefan, an okay. absolute gem. Hit me with it. Um, so there is something on Netflix called The Untold Tales of Armistead Maupin. Yes, documentary. A, you know about yes, it. Yes, okay, gorgeous. I didn't. Great. So it's a documentary about Armistead Maupin's life, mm. uh, uh, the troubles he's uh, hit upon in his life and, you know, publishing his work, his much-loved works, and sort of the backstory of him and the show that brought everyone together. Um, it looks like it's going to be sort of a hard-hitting if I'm correct if I'm wrong here, it looks a bit hard hitting. It looks a bit sort of yeah. I mean, he lived through some some pretty intense times, yeah. and he's lived through it all. But I think the important thing, which is why the show works so well as well, and why Anna Madrigal is for me the standout of the show, is she's his mouthpiece. Mm. And yes, there's lots of wonderful one liners, but basically, it's a world view. And frankly, we need Armistead Morpin to run the world because he is a human being that values truth, individuality, human rights, and just the right to be and to love. And we need more of that. And that's what he's fought for all his life in his writing, in his broadcasting, in the way he lives his life, in his activism. And I think it's just an incredible example. And we need more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I want to hit up on the incredible Queer Eye. Um, obviously, if you want something a bit lighter, uh, lighter viewing, but you still want to stay in the LGBTQ plus community, hit up Queer Eye. It's, it's the best viewing ever. I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, but I mean, how many times can Tan give people a French tuck? Hey, uh, seriously, I, it's I, I love it, but I'm uh, it's a little bit repetitive for me. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm just saying it's a bit of lighter viewing after the uh, the hard hitting conversations that you we get in first there. two series. Yes, I cried sure. like a baby more than once. Precisely, um, it's wearing a little bit thin for me. If you haven't seen it, you definitely need to check it out. Helen, any thoughts on that one? I mean, that was genuinely going to be my only recommendation. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> It's Pride Month, you know, what more to celebrate it than just having, you know, people being people, loving who they want to love, you know, and like just kind of living their best lives. And that's just the five, the Fab Five, like let alone the like amazing people that they do welcome onto the show. And, um, you know, they do transform lives, but it's never in a patronizing way. And it's always really sweet and fun. And I would recommend it to anyone, even if you've had you know, the worst day imaginable, go and put an episode of Queer Eye on, ball like a baby, and then you feel all right again, and it's fine. I would just jump in with one recommendation, which obviously we all know about already and was was a big splash when it came out. But for me, something like Tales of the City, if you haven't seen it, if you have, go back and watch it, Sex Education. Oh, yeah, that's excellent. Very, very similar. Mm -hmm. Just crazy, ridiculous, over-the-top storylines with very graphic sex, but that's not what it's all about. All it was about was about the truth of being a human being and trying to figure out who the hell you are and find someone to love you or to love yourself. And I think those two shows for me are very comparable in both on their message and in the level of excellence of execution and the way the shows were done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agreed. That is one of the favorites here on, on Netflix. Next up, something special. Our arts editor, Stefan Kiriazis, is going to hit us with the latest and greatest 
films that are coming out on Netflix this week. We've got a big new release from Netflix. It's another one of their original products. This time it's I Am Mother. And would you believe it, Callum, we're in a chilly post-apocalyptic future. Humanity's been wiped out again. That's refreshing. And there's a couple of plucky women is pretty much holding it all together. Hurrah. Um, we've had Sandra Bullock facing literally nightmare monsters, Emily Blunt facing scream monsters that you can't actually scream. Mm-hmm. And now, this time around, the big name in it is Hilary Swank, but she's not actually the central character. The central character is an extraordinary young actress, Clara Rugard. She's another Danish up-and-comer. It reminds me an awful lot of Alicia Vikander. She's got that kind of mysterious stillness and sense of something concealed going on underneath the depths. She's in a bunker with a robot and she's been raised by this robot who she calls mother the robot calls her daughter and when Hilary Swank comes crashing into their crazy world she's only referred to as woman so there's lots of symbolism going on here there's lots of stuff about the future um and it should be pointed out that I I suspect this is often done because number one post-apocalypse you can have built-in menace number two you don't need an awful lot of sets and normally not a big cast so (laughs) a bit of money saving here but it's effective so are you are you sold yet? Are you intrigued? What's I'm going about on? there. I'm about there. So what would what would uh, urge me to watch this over Bird Box for, per se? Um, well, Bird Box was was pretty phenomenal, mm-hmm. um, but it was just a lot of sort of running around as we're trying to figure it out. So it's a little bit more um, sort of action drama. This one is set pretty much in the bunker, and it's one of those ones where you're actually trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. And once Hilary Swank's character comes crashing in, you don't actually know. If she's good or bad or if robot mother is good or bad or if they're both good or bad so it's it's one of those great ones where you're with the daughter trying to figure it out as you go along and i rather enjoy that and it works very very well like that your your perceptions are shifting the whole time and you keep thinking you figure it out and then you haven't and it for once pretty much pulls that off all the way to the end okay. which is often unusual with these things okay 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 i'll, list, I'll so watch yeah that's it's, fine. It's, it's, it's shot beautifully it looks wonderful um, and I think, yeah, it's it's a, an honourable entry into the Netflix original films, um, and it's actually a nice piece of sci-fi. It's Friday Night Sorted. So, yeah, that's that. Not a lot of laughs. Mm-hmm. However, if you want something cosy, this is my secret pick. This is a lot of people at your age and, and many other people may never have heard of. Mystic Pizza is lurking there. It's new to Netflix this week. It's hidden in the depths. This is Julia Roberts' kind of first semi-starring role. It's her with Annabeth Gish and Lily Taylor, and they're three pizza waitresses in a very working class fishing town in America. And it is gorgeous. 1988, Matt Damon's first ever appearance on screen. This, again, everybody needs to watch. And I keep repeating my point from other things. Netflix needs to watch this film. This is how you do a romantic comedy drama. It's all very well slamming on your 80s synths and sort of shrugging into some cute 80s riff clothes and having some clever references or being very woke about what the latest issues are or what kind of social things you're addressing. What you need is just a bloody good story. And then everything else falls into place. So this is three girls. You've got, this was made in 1988, but you've got sexual politics where it's one of the girls that wants all the sex, not the boy. The husband, the fiance wants to get married and settle down. It's the girl that's using sex as a way to avoid intimacy and just fear of growing up. And then you have another girl that's always told that she's no good. Julia Roberts, as always, hits it out of the park. But it's dealing with issues that probably weren't very commonly dealt with in 1988. Proper working class. It's not a rom-com where everyone lives in giant McMansions and somehow you think, this is not my life. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's romantic. Do you love Julia Roberts? I do. Who doesn't? Yeah, who doesn't? And this sounds a little bit like... um... 
like a backwards version of uh, St. Elmo's Fire. Yeah. Yeah. But it's this time, this is all about the girls, but this is actually real women, not women as symbols or women as sort of empowered. This is just real people in a real situation. And it is so wonderfully romantic, but it's also really funny. And the drama works. It gets you in the gut. There's a couple of real punches in the film. And this, I feel, with a lot of the Netflix kind of recent rom-coms, they're all very cute. And it feels like they've hit the formula. But something for me, in I don't know what, if you can mm-hmm. name any Netflix rom-coms that you think particularly mm. worked. There's but the, like um, to all the boys I loved before and everything. Right. They're, they're cute. Yeah. But, but there's just something yeah they're missing that sort of i don't want to say in you know the 80s something but in the 80s it was a bit more substance uh, yeah absolutely sorry to say it but yeah. they're, they're cute but just a little bit surface mm-hmm. and and that's that's my issue with a lot of the netflix if i hear one more synth soundtrack Callum, <laughs> on anything i'm all for the synth soundtracks well, I, yes. I love those god bless stranger things yeah absolutely. but i feel that it's led netflix somewhat astray there is nothing that doesn't have a synth soundtrack this is not enough Okay. can't just bang a synth soundtrack on something and it's cool so this is my issue with that so um, that i will find you a film that's good and has a synth soundtrack cook yourself up a slice of mystic pizza everybody nice. everybody now the big 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 thing on netflix which i'm sure you've already seen but it's well worth seeing spider-man homecoming one of the favorites love 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 tom holland for me amazing mm-hmm. he's just a genius and the important thing for this if you have seen it or you haven't the next one spider-man far from home is about to hit cinemas on july the 5th so watch this film, get all caught up, get yourself swinging from the ceiling. Nice. Um, oh, yes. Um, but this, this is it's just a wonderful, fun film. So this is a great rainy Sunday film. And very similar, we were discussing this a little bit. It's two of our, one of our favorites, mm-hmm. Baby Driver. I love Baby Driver. As we said, it's been overlooked by almost everyone. Um, it, it stars, oh, what's his name? Ansel Elgort, wonderful name. Wonderful name. Um, Edgar Wright's obviously a joint of his, and it's got a whole load of good people in it. John Hamm's in yeah. it. Uh, Peter, uh, John oh. Bernthal, there it is, John Bernthal. Uh, he's in it for like 10 minutes at the beginning. And Kevin Spacey, yes. it's a difficult one. He is magnificent in the film. Everything we now know has happened afterwards, but you can't deny that he makes a great sinister, or maybe because of it, a great sinister villain. Mm. Um, but it's a wonderful film. It's one of the few films that it's a drama with a great soundtrack. It's not a musical and yet it felt like a music. I, yep. Like I've, I've never seen a thing where they're tapping on the dashboard of the car mm-hmm. or they're slamming a door or he walks down the street and it's choreographed yep. and is not real and yet wonderful. And I just can't explain how happy yeah. the film makes me. Everything's diegetic and every every piece of music is in the film yeah. as much as any it's, character. It's really intelligently done. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. Wonderful. Yeah. So everybody, if you haven't seen this, watch this. And also watch out for this young boy because he's hugely talented and he will be in Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story, which is going to be epic. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he's the leading man and that makes me very, very excited. So this is something definitely to be excited about. Now there's another Transformers one, which you have seen. Yeah. (laughs) I actually, Mr. Film Critic (laughs) and Arts Editor, I actually haven't. So do we really want to see the latest Transformers? If okay, so if you liked all the, the last trans- night, if you, uh, it was not the last one. Um, if you liked all the Transformers films up to that one, you'll probably like this one. Okay. If not, maybe give it a miss. It's okay. a bit more of the you know the man screams at robot because the woman's been taken away, etc., etc. Surely kind not. Of thing. Oh yeah. Slow mo, yeah. cars flying overhead, that kind of goodness. How could I resist? Well, I felt a little bit the same about Despicable Me three. Mm. I, I haven't seen this one. I feel like I've, I'm, I'm fine with Despicable Me. And, and there was lots of, you know, there's the minions who are always good value. But I feel 
I'm good with it now. I've, I'm despicabled out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a huge mammoth hit. So, you know, fair enough. There's a very cute little film tucked in new this week called A Royal Affair. Mm-hmm. So we've obviously got The Crown happening, which you guys are all over. That's true. For our Netflix TV coverage. Mm-hmm. This is about Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret back when it was Victory in Europe Day. And they have been escaping from the palace. And they go on one crazy night where they describe themselves as civilians Based on a true story, they did actually go out into Trafalgar Square and mingle with the masses, huh. dressed as every nobody knew at the time, but they were there. But this builds a whole kind of crazy fantasy with a bit of a dodgy romance subplot for <laughs> Princess Elizabeth and a hunky young soldier. Um, but if you like your historical dramas and a bit of romance, okay, I think you should definitely, definitely, definitely check this one out. So there's, there's lots of different things going on this week, but I would say... Baby driver, baby, baby driver. driver, baby driver. Check out Iron Mother and then just bring yourself home with a lovely dose of Tom Holland in Spider-Man Homecoming. I think I'm going to forego Tom Holland for that mystic pizza because that sounds fantastic, to be honest. It's delicious. Yeah, That's I can't wait. Is. Extra it's... toppings, please. <laughs> so that's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us to chat about Tales of the City. Thank you, Stefan. It's been a pleasure to have you. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and tell your friends about us. Join in with the debate on Twitter, at NetflixPod, where we'll be teasing details of our next episode, which will be all about Dark Season 2. We've got the lowdown on the new season, and I'm 99.9% sure Helen is going to have a pun-based game for this one. Mm-hmm. Let's all try and get excited for that one. Hey, Helen. I mean, I'm, I'm working hard on the moment. <laughs> Great. See you everyone next week. <laughs>